Well, Happy New Year, and welcome back to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I'm excited about the new year and all that God is going to do in our lives. Today, we begin a short series entitled The Space Between, in which we will explore the new normal that God is inviting us into as a community of faith. We always face changes, and the journey from the old normal to the new normal can be really unsettling. It is, however, a critical journey, and we need courage to press on and to resist the temptation to retreat to the old, comfortable ways. In this message, I want to reflect on one of the fundamental invitations I believe we have been given over the course of last year, the invitation to hope. Well, welcome to 2021 and the start of not only a new year, but a new sermon series. Over January, we're going to be talking about the space between, which is essentially an opportunity to reflect on how I assume you're feeling and uh, maybe just a reflection of how I'm feeling. And that is that we find ourselves between the old normal and the new normal. Some people talk about that as a liminal space and this idea that we're between two different places and it's really upsetting and disrupted place. Uh, I'm reading a book entitled Uproar. The author says that the liminal, to talk about something as liminal is, is wonderful, but it takes the emotion out of it. He reckons uproar is a better descriptor of that situation. Uh, as a community of faith, we've used uh, over the last year and a bit uh, the phrase, the exercise ball of chaos, uh, to talk about this liminal between stage. It's ultimately the period of change, uh, recognizing that we're leaving something behind and trying to find something new, a new normal. Uh, and I think in these moments, there's a temptation to return to what is comfortable and known rather than pressing on to what is new. And the belief that what is new is actually really, really good for us. So this is going to be the, the, the series over January. Uh, we're kind of mixing some, up, some things up. It's going to be a little bit lighter on. Uh, but I trust that you will hear the invitation of God in each of these messages to reflect on the invitation to lean in and press on towards the new normal. But before I reflect on the invitation that I believe that we have in the early days of 2021, I actually want to recount and reflect on a story that's found in the Old Testament. It's a story that's actually found three times. It's the story of King Ahaz and a uh, political and military problem that he faced. And the Lord's request for him or the Lord's answer to him uh, and his own response. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, that's where we're going to begin the story. Uh, it's uh, told to us in Isaiah 7. It's also mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 16 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And I'm going to be re reflecting a little bit on all three of those passages because while they tell the same story, they tell the story with slightly different details. So if you have your Bibles and you've opened to Isaiah chapter 7, you might see that this is the passage that we often read at Christmas because because it includes the sign of Emmanuel, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let me outline the crisis that young King Ahaz faces. Try to, uh, try to listen to what's happening despite all of the names. There's a whole bunch of names included here, but uh, I'll kind of piece it together for you. So here it is, chapter 7 of Isaiah, starting in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah... King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. 
Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is the scenario. Now, again, there's a whole bunch of names in there, but essentially uh, this is the, the plot. Uh, Judah is, the, is uh, the nation that's centered around Jerusalem. To the north is the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and they're also known as the kingdom of Ephraim. It's another alternate name used in scripture. And north of them is Aram. And Aram and Israel have allied together, formed a coalition and have attacked Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, and this is more than just words. This is more than uh, them just saying, hey, this might be a nice thing to do or, or, or to, to threaten Ahaz. They've actually gone forward with it. If you have a look in verse five of chapter seven, it says, Aram, Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. So the plot was fairly simple. They're trying to overwhelm Judah. Then they're going to divvy up the territory between the kings of the coalition and set a puppet king on the throne, someone who would do their bidding. This is the scenario that they face. And as I said, it's more than just words. If you have a look in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we find a second telling of this same period of time. The author of Chronicles has a different interest and so he includes some different details for us and makes very, very clear kind of why some of this has happened. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, if you have a look in verse 6, we get a little bit of an insight into the nature of the threat Ahaz was facing. Verse 6 of 2 Chronicles chapter 28. In one day, Pekah, son of Remaliah, this is the king of Israel, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Zikri, an Ephraimite warrior, killed Messiah, the king's son, Azrakam, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. The men of Israel took captive from their fellow Israelites who were from Judah, 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. So in, in, in Isaiah 7, when it says that they were gonna tear the place apart and divide it amongst themselves. And when this coalition has freaked out the people of Jerusalem, this is why. It describes this one battle, 120,000 casualties uh, that the king's son, one of the princes of the realm had been killed. Two leading men of the country had also been killed. Heaps of plunder had been taken, prisoners of war. And if you kind of move forward in the, the chapter in 2 Chronicles and move ahead to verse 17, we're told that the Edomites, who were a nation to the south of Israel, had again come and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners. While the Philistines, and they were to the east of Judah, had raided towns in the foothills and in the Negev of Judah. They captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ajailon, and Gedaroth, as well as Soko, Timna, and Gimzo with their surrounding villages. So this, this is the crisis that Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem and Judah are experiencing. An overwhelming defeat, uh, incredible loss of territory, uh, of wealth, 
um, of status, of influence, and the real threat for Ahaz that his kingdom would fall. And if it wasn't for, if it wasn't the Israelites and the Arameans who did that, it might have been his own people. Because even kings, I mean, people don't like their kings to fail any more than they like their elected politicians to fail. This is an incredibly powerful crisis. I think the way that uh, Isaiah describes it in, in chapter 7, verse 2, that the hearts of the people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. That's a pretty good metaphor. That there's no more certainty. There's no more sense of control over their situation. And so it's quite striking then that the Lord sends Isaiah with this message. Again, in Isaiah chapter 7, just pick it up in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. This is the word of the Lord. Be careful, stay calm, don't be afraid. And then Isaiah gives him a sign. These words might be familiar with to you. If you have a look in verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin or the young woman will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So do not be afraid, stay calm, be careful, and trust in the Lord. And notice that the, um, the invitation to trust is not immediate. Uh, it's not immediate at all. The Lord doesn't say by this time next week or in the next 24 hours or even in four or five months, the sign, right? And, and we're familiar with kind of putting that in and seeing that as fulfilled most fully in Jesus. But ultimately, it was a sign much closer to home for Isaiah for the very simple reason that the birth of a child 700 years later is probably not very helpful for him in the moment. But the sign itself is that a, a young woman will become pregnant, have a son, and that son will grow to be able to know right and wrong. I don't know how many years that is, five, six, seven, eight. That's a long time to trust the Lord. That's a long time to live with the uncertainty and the ambiguity and the anxiety and the fear of the situation that they were in. How would you have gone in that situation? I don't know how I would have gone. I, I feel for Ahaz, his, his failure, and I've sort of ruined the end of the story for you, but his failure is told three times and re remembered in Scripture. But I don't know that I would have done much better. This is an incredibly um, difficult call to trust in the Lord. Perhaps it's not surprising then that Ahaz responds the way he does. If you turn to 2 Kings chapter 16, this is the third place where this story is told. And just again to, to note that there are very few stories in the Old Testament that are told with this amount of detail three times over. Uh, there are a couple, but not many. And so there's something quite significant about this instance, about this moment in time, this uh, moment when they were called to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to put their hope in Him, uh, that is quite um, revealing for the people of God then and now. Second Kings chapter 16. 
If you look in verse 7, we're not told in 2 Kings 16 uh, when Isaiah shows up in the scene, but we assume it's at some point before verse 7 because here's Ahaz's response. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put resin to death. Now on the surface, it seems as if Ahaz has saved Jerusalem, has saved Judah, has saved his own kingdom. And yet... The, the authors of the Old Testament want to make it very, very clear that Ahaz has not saved anything. In 2 Chronicles chapter 18, it says that Tiglath-Pileser did not help, but only brought him trouble. And for the better part of 100 years, as, kind of, as we follow the story along, the people of Judah remained as a vassal, a, a subservient ally to the mighty Assyrian Empire. They lost independence. And as is recorded in the rest of chapter 16 of 2 Kings, they lost their, um, their, their religious freedom. There was an expectation of religious loyalty to the gods of Assyria with which Ahaz complied. And it was almost a century before this was undone. The trouble that Ahaz brought upon his people by his failure to trust in the Lord is remarkable. What Ahaz chose, and again, I don't want to blame him. I, I, I think that any of us would have struggled in that situation. But Ahaz chose an immediate certainty and a sense of control over hope and trust in the word of the Lord. I reflected on this at Christmas because I actually think that one of the most significant parts of the new normal for us or to put it differently, the, the great temptation for us heading into 2021 after 2020 is, is not about becoming more comfortable wearing face masks uh, or uh, expecting a government plan to work out how we respond to future potential pandemics uh, or being more comfortable with social distancing or uh, the capacity to just be better at hand hygiene. I think that the great temptation for us moving forward is that we will retreat to what we were marked by before 2020, and that is certainty and control and comfort. I think that's the old normal that's been disrupted. I mean, I don't know what else 2020 taught us apart from the fact that we are not nearly in as much control as we think we are. Uh, any illusion that we had, that we kind of had it all under control, was wiped away by 2020. And there are other aspects in our world that had kind of shaken the foundations of our certainty long before that. But 2020, I think, made that really, really clear. And it seems to me that the great invitation of God to us right here, right now, is actually to learn to hope in the Lord to learn to trust in his promises rather than retreat to certainty, rather than retreat to uh, control. As I reflected on at Christmas, I think we often substitute a certainty for hope. But certainty is fragile. 
easily broken. It requires very little courage and has no room for empathy because I can't, I, I can't afford to have any doubts or questions about what I am certain about, lest my whole world come crashing down. Hope is resilient. It's delicate, but resilient. And is a much, much better way forward for us, particularly when what we hope for is the certain promises of God. Despite all the doubts and ambiguities, the uncertainties around it, we know that the Lord can be trusted and therein lies the balance of hope. But I think one of the challenges for us is, is just how biased our culture is towards certainty and control. And if we're going to become people of hope in 2021 and beyond, we're going to have to work hard at it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon a, a YouTube clip by a fellow named Destin Sandin. It's a fellow of the United States, uh, does a, I think it's, whether well, it's a podcast or a YouTube channel, but Smarter Every Day, I think is what it's called. And uh, I don't know how I stumbled upon the video, but in, in the video, he is introduced, some, some people had made a backwards bicycle. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the, the being backwards in terms of the orientation, but the steering wheel. When you turn the handle to the right, instead of the, the wheel turning to the right, it turned left. And if you turn it to the left, the wheel turned right. Uh, and he thought, well, yeah, I can figure this out. I mean, how hard can it possibly be? So he hopped on the bike and simply could not figure out, couldn't get his brain to figure out how to ride this backwards bike. Uh, and he found it really frustrating, but also this incredibly powerful demonstration of how strong the neural pathways are in our brain. And so he set himself the task of learning to ride the backwards bike. And so basically every day he would spend five minutes practicing riding the bike. Do you want to know how long it took him before he could actually ride the bike up and down his driveway? Eight months. Eight months of practicing for five minutes a day before his brain really figured out how to ride this reverse bike. It's pretty funny if you follow the whole video on. He ends up trying to ride a normal bike after that and can't. It's, it's pretty funny. But the whole, the whole image just kind of captured for me what I feel that we are trying to do if we try to live by hope. Because our whole world is biased towards control, is biased towards certainty. I wonder if some of our polarization is not actually a reflection of our deep desire, our thirst for certainty. And therefore, we just kind of paint everything in very black and white terms. But, but the practices of hope, it's going to take us some time, not, not to change our brains, but to change the pathways of our heart. To find new ways to live that require hope rather than certainty. And so here's my challenge for you. You know, we just come out of the Christmas season and, and I like to think that we talk enough about the, the hope that we have in Jesus in terms of his restoring and renewing work in our own lives and that of our families, our neighborhoods, uh, our schools, our workplaces, our nation and our world. I hope that you have, an, have enough of a sense of the, the promises of God to us in Christ Jesus. But here's what I'd like you to reflect on. What are some of the practices of hope that you can begin to practice for five minutes each day for the next eight months until your heart develops a new pathway. What are some of the, the practices of hope? The practices that if, we, if, if we're put into our lives might, if we ever face an Ahaz experience, might just help us hope rather than short circuit the promises of God. 
I hope you have this conversation with the people that you're watching this with or people in your life group or other uh, spiritual friends of yours, those who are following Jesus like you are. But let me suggest just a couple. Uh, maybe not every day, but I think most days you could come up with this list. List the things that you are facing that day that you cannot control. Those things that you cannot control. List them out and then pray through them. Just acknowledge that you cannot control them and that you want to trust the Lord in that circumstance. A few things each day would create a pretty good pathway in our hearts. One of the ways I think that we seek to exert control uh, over our lives is to control the little things. We want to control uh, every aspect of our lives. Uh, and the more control we have in those spaces, the more we feel like we're on top of it and that we're okay. And I'd like to suggest that a second practice of help might actually be to practice getmo. It's a little phrase come up with by uh, Craig Grishel. He talks about it as good enough to move on. Uh, to resist the urge for perfection, but to leave a little bit of margin, to recognize when good enough is good enough and to leave the details to one side. Now, let me, let me be clear here. If you're a heart surgeon, a brain surgeon, a lawyer, don't, don't practice Getmo ever at work. But in your personal life, in your family life, and how you are, uh, seek to even be kind to yourself, a practice just recognizing that you don't have to have everything all together to move on. And then finally, as, as, as a start, and I'd love to hear what else you come up with, I'd encourage you to take some time this week to meditate on and perhaps even memorize Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. I'm going to read these words to you, and that's going to be the kind of the close of this message. I want to leave these words ringing in your heart, because while Jesus doesn't talk about hope and certainty, he talks a lot about worry and about the kind of life that we're called to. So I'd urge you to have the conversation. What practices can you begin to put into your life this week that begin to help us chart a path in our hearts towards hope? But let me read these words to you from Matthew chapter six. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Well, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the courage to hope rather than retreat to control uncertainty. May the example of Ahaz remind us all of the need for hope and trust. 
I hope you join us again soon, and I want to invite you to join us on www.gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time for our online services, or visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au for service times. Until next time, God bless.